This episode is sponsored by Nitor, a digital engineering company. People are lazy by nature and thus need to be supervised. This is one of the myths that Nitor wants to bust. Without trust, a lot of energy is wasted and people work against each other. Instead, a better digital world is created through flexible structures and agile management. Nitor ranks extremely well in both customer and employee satisfaction. Our clients and our employees are smart, so it would be stupid not to trust them, says Matti Vilmi, the CEO of Nitor. To learn more about the myths Nitor is busting, go to nitor.fi slash myths. Welcome to Boss Level Podcast. Last month was a record-breaking month for Boss Level. The podcast reached 13,000 monthly listens, which is not bad at all for an independent podcast on a fairly niche topic. So thank you for listening and thanks for sharing the episodes. I really appreciate it. I'm learning a lot from the discussions I'm having on the podcast and I hope you are too. We have two episodes left in this season and then I'm off to a summer vacation. After this and the next episode, the podcast will be on a break until the end of August or beginning of September. I haven't really decided yet. If you're interested in sponsoring the next season, you need to hurry up and contact me at sami at bossavalpodcast.com. Okay, but now let's get to the episode. So, when I started the podcast a year and a half ago, one of the guests I had in mind very early on was John Seddon. I was introduced to Seddon's work by Hermann Hüttiela while still at Reactor. Seddon's work has provoked a lot of thought and has significantly deepened my understanding of how organizations function. John Seddon is the inventor of the Vanguard Method. The Vanguard Method is a way of helping organizations move from command and control towards systems design. Seddon is the author of books such as Freedom from Command and Control and The White Hall Effect. He's currently working on a book titled Beyond Command and Control. We talk about organizations as systems, value and failure demand, incentives, system conditions, budgeting, and how the system drives behavior. So here he is, starting off by explaining how the Vanguard method came to be. Uh, I was working in, in the prison service, actually, uh, as a psychologist, uh, with a kind of ne- an emphasis on uh, clinical, criminological psychology. Uh, and I met this guy who said to me, instead of working on individuals in the prison, why don't you work on the organisation, because you'll have a greater impact. And it's one of those thoughts where I thought, you know, I think he's right, but I don't know what to do. But it started that little nag. Uh, And then actually he became a professor of organisational psychology, so I went to study with him. And I got... uh, I got terribly interested in something called intervention theory, based a lot on, on, on the, work of, uh, the early work of Chris Argyris. Uh, I, I differ with him in terms of the methods that I use in intervention. Uh, but I got terribly interested in intervention theory. And I, but when I came out of that degree, I rather felt as though um, 
I had a passion for intervention theory, but I didn't have any kind of meat in my sandwich, you know, something to go and intervene on other than this general idea that as an interventionist, you need to be able to move into a system, help people and then move out of it so they don't need any more help, you know. Um, <clears throat> and then I got lucky uh, in two ways. The first was uh, I was doing some work on organisational change and I got asked to audit quality programmes that had failed. So I had to read all the quality gurus. Um, and I was massively influenced by the work of Deming, not the others, Deming. Uh, because he was very articulate about this idea that we've invented management, we can change it, current management doesn't work, um, we should understand and run our organisations as systems. And I could see from doing that work on, on TQM programmes that failed that, uh, you know, we're trying to change a system with a toolbox, that won't work. A lot of the theory in the tools that's implicit is diametrically opposed to the theory of the firm. It's the theory of the firm that's the problem. Yeah, so, so that sort of started me off, and I was mapping out. So then the challenge became: Well, how do you understand an organisation as a system? And then I got lucky again because um, <clears throat> I'd been working with a guy who was a director of a company, and we were very successful. What we did was quite simple, um, but it was focused on the customer. Um, and then he got a series of directorships and then chief executive positions. And I worked with him as his consultant flat out for about 10 years in every position that he took. And lastly, he would take a share type position um, because he, he, he then, he, with me, specialised in turning around failing companies. You know, So we, we'd go into a company, that, for example, in the telco sector, losing a million pounds a month and turn it around in six months. People couldn't believe how fast you could turn these around. Well, now, so... He valued the idea that change must start with getting knowledge and studying. Uh, I was developing, so how do you study service organisations as systems? We would argue a lot. We got on really well. We would argue a lot about, have we? I would say, have we studied enough, Peter? Do we really know what we need? You know? And he would kind of go, well, it doesn't matter, John, because you know, we keep studying. So if we're going to take this action, if we get it wrong, we'll learn. And he was right. And he really taught me speed. Um, so, you know, we, could, we were turning around companies really, really fast. And it was in that period that we really developed what became the Vanguard method, particularly in terms of how to study and how to design. You mentioned that you realized uh, that you should look at the organization as a system. Mm. So can you talk a little more about that? So what, what did that mean for you back then? What did you start <clears throat> looking at differently and what did that... Well, I didn't really know. Um, didn't really know. I mean, it, it was kind of, it was kind of axiomatic. You've got to study what's happening to customers, and why. So I suppose that started to open the doors. Uh, I mean, I, I, I suppose one great example is when I first hit upon the idea of failure demand. You know, we were working in um, uh, digital, digital equipment corporation. Uh, it's about nineteen eighty six. Uh, they decided to sell computers over the phone. Uh, that was novel in those days. Um, and they wanted to sell more computers, which is entirely reasonable. Uh, and they had this idea that we're going to incentivize the workers to sell. That'll, that'll do it. And, 
I, I just intuitively didn't like that idea because being a psychologist, I understand that all of the research shows that incentives get you less, not more. Uh, so I said I didn't like the idea. And of course, you know, the boss said, well, what do we do then? <laughs> if you don't like the idea, what should we do? I said, I don't know. Let's go and have a find out what's going on. Um, and then you, when you listen to the calls, you get all these calls from customers, you know, saying things like, well, I asked for this, you sent me that, this cable doesn't fit, I've got a problem with blah, blah, blah. And you, you, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? If we didn't have all those calls, we could sell more. You get more capacity. Yeah, because they were dealing with failures. The calls right. were dealing with failure. Yeah, yeah. And, and in 1986, I called it demand we don't want. Yeah. And I only settled on a definition in about the early 90s. And the definition is demand caused by a failure to do something or do something right for the yeah. customer. Actually, I, I think that's one of the one of the most useful concepts that I've actually learned from you, the, the distinct, distinction between value demand and failure demand. Failure demand, this is people calling in because we failed to do things right the first time, and that's why they're calling us. And we shouldn't try to fix it by dealing with this call the best way that we can, but we should actually try to fix the problem that they have to call us again. What do you suppose a command and control thinker thinks when they get the idea of failure demand? They blame the people. <laughs> There's plenty of people. <laughs> Um, or they blame the processes. Yeah, yeah. If only they bloody do the processes right, and we wouldn't have all the failure demand. Or, and this is most extraordinary, uh, they defend it as an industry benchmark. Okay, yeah, I mean this actually happens. You know, somebody in an insurance company walked into his boss said, "We've studied failure demand. We've got forty-five percent failure demand in our insurance company," and the boss just looked at him and said, "Well, I'm sure that's about industry standard." I mean, what a dickhead. <laughs> what they don't get. You see, failure demand's a really easy concept to understand. And if you're a cost freak, you'll understand it. Guys, cost me a lot of money. What you don't understand is what causes it. And yeah. when, when you go and study, what you learn is it's your system that causes it. It's your IVR. It's your focus on activity. It's your standardization, it's your specialization, it's all the things that you've built, it's the front and back office separation. All of those things are what create the failure demand. It, what it teaches you then is that a conventional command and control, front office, back office, activity managed service organization doesn't work. I think there's like, let's say that you're in a situation where you get a lot of calls to your call center, there's a lot of support tickets coming into your organization. I think the intuitive response is that we, we need to improve our process. We need to hire more people. <clears throat> we need to, to do something that, that we can get rid of these tickets faster. And, and what I kind of learned from, from, from your like concepts of value demand and failure demand was that you don't actually fix that problem by adding resources to the problem, but you should actually, and, and I think that's kind of counterintuitive also, that that to to be able to get rid of the failure demand, you should actually focus on the value demand. That's correct. Yeah. Which means design it properly. I'll give you another great example of this. Um, in the UK, we've industrialized our health, our health system, you know, so, so if you go, go into the health service uh, in the UK, uh, if you ask 
the people running it, the leaders, how many transactions they fulfilled last year, they'll tell you. If you say how many patients did you have, they don't know. So that's actually a, a, a fairly dire example of, of activity-based management, of, yeah. of target setting and, and so on. Yeah. So, so you actually you speak very strongly against targets. So can we try to sum it down? Like, what's the problem that you have with targets? Why, why, are not, why shouldn't we set numeric targets to, to get better performance? If you impose any arbitrary measure down a hierarchy, uh, what it will do is distort the system. And so it's not just targets, it's budget, it's uh, service levels, standard times. Any, sta any arbitrary measure into a system, I learned this from Deming, uh, and then I learned how to prove it, and you can prove it in any system. So what's important here is that we actually, we have measures that do not become targets, that we actually have measures that we look at, but we don't have incentives attached to no, them. Never have an incentive. If you have incentives, you'll get less work because people focus on how do I get the incentive as opposed to do the work. And I think an, ar an argument that you've probably heard thousands of th times is that this simply means that you don't know how to set incentives properly. Mm. What do you say to that? Well, clearly I'm a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> And you don't know. All of the research shows that one of the peculiar things about humans is that as soon as you create a contingent relationship, do this to get that, we focus on get that. So you say to your children, here's some money for reading a book. It takes the value out of reading books. Scary. I see, I mean, you see it in every organization. No, incentives always get you less. And I think uh, one of the interesting things there is that, like, if you come from, uh, from an organization that's been managed through incentives and you move, move into an organization that is not, it's, it's a huge change. Yes. Because all of the structures that you used to rely on to yes. give you kind of feedback for your work yes. are now gone. Yes. It's, it's a huge change and it can be very scary. Yes, it is. And it's, I mean, it's a very important point you make because what we find as interventionists is that we uh, have to design uh, simple ways to help build the confidence of both the worker and the leader in doing that. Yeah. So uh, we have little structures that they use uh, to see whether or not you know, the decision that they're making is proportionate, that it's necessary, uh, that it's auditable. Uh, so everyone feels comfortable that actually using your discretion is okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually thinking for yourself is a yeah. good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if you know this, but uh, James McKinsey invented budget management, the, the heart of the disease. I have learned in my life, and I teach students this, I teach a lot of students, whenever you, whenever you come across something, you should ask who invented it, uh, what problem was he trying to solve? And do I have that problem? Budget management was invented by James McKinsey. The problem he was trying to solve, and he was successful in solving it, uh, was for Alfred Sloan. And Alfred Sloan was the chief executive of General Motors, and General Motors was an amorphous mess. So nobody really knew what was going on. In, in my language, how the system consumed money. Uh, it's not the language that McKinsey would use. Um, and so introducing budget management created a form of order. But now, a hundred years later, it's still the centerpiece of command and control. You know, everybody acknowledges there's problems with budget management, and 
people, but people don't know what to do about it. Now, my contribution is to say, look, what we've, got, we've got to set this in the context of control. We do budget management because we think it controls things. So we have to help people see that it doesn't control things. It actually is a major cause of suboptimization. This is another example of managing costs. Costs go up. And we've got to introduce them to better theories and methods of control. Um, and now that puts you in the place that uh, Deming would have us, that if we, actually, if we can actually understand what's going on, uh, we can predict performance going forward. And if we can predict performance going forward, then we don't need to waste all this time doing budget management because we'll have a knowledge-based budgeting process if we even have a budgeting process at all. I actually have a definition of budgeting that I that I use. It's def, uh, budgeting is the process through which corporations spend ridiculous amounts of time and energy compiling semi-random numbers into a spreadsheet that they then use for command and control leadership. That's about right. I think that's very <laughs> opposite. You make predictions on on the future that you actually like. You have very little data to. to for you to be able to make good predictions about it mm. then you aggregate them from the lower parts of the organization upwards so you end up uh like adding estimates or like guesses to other guesses and mm. then multiplying guesses mm. Mm. with guesses and gaming it all the way gaming it all the way there's actually there, there's the whole theater that's around budgeting where you like if you're projecting your sales numbers for example you know that that number is going to be your target for the next year so you know that you should make it as low as possible mm -hmm. so you can get your incentives mm -hmm. but then again uh, you shouldn't make it too low because then the manager will know that you're trying to game it mm -hmm. so those mm -hmm. are kind of the two, two and in constraints. any event the manager will be saying no no more exactly more. exactly and, and they, with costs it will be less yes whatever number it is You don't even need to know the number. Like when someone gives you a sales projection for next year, you don't even need to know the number. You can just say it needs to be a little higher. That's it's that easy. This is why we pay them so much money. That was very complicated, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Let's talk about changing organizations. So if we want to change an organization more towards a system's design and uh, we want to see the organization as a system where do we begin this work study what what, what are the kinds of things that we look for when we study an organization sure if you're gonna i mean if we're uh, i'll talk about transactional services most services are transactional not all of them uh, but a transactional service is one that starts with a customer demand Uh, what are the things that you would do if you're going to study it? Well, the first thing you do is you discuss what is the purpose of this service from a customer's point of view. It's a really interesting thing um, that, you know, to you and me as an outsider, it might seem blindingly obvious. Very often to leaders in organizations, it's not that obvious because they're so wrapped up in their view of the world. But you certainly got to try to focus for, for, on uh, what the purpose is. <coughs> um, Another essential step is you've got to go out there and study what's happening with demand. This is where you discover there's value demand and failure demand. Uh, and that becomes a bit of an ouch. Um, typically, then you go and measure your achievement. Now, now you know it isn't working, but now you go and measure the achievement of purpose from a customer's point of view. 
because if you had any doubts about what the purpose was, that should have been dealt with once you start studying demand. So now you've got to measure achievement of purpose from a customer's point of view, and you get a major shock that how crappy you really are from a customer's point of view. <clears throat> and now you notice we haven't even looked at the processes yet. Now this is very important. Um, and measurement has gone on around achievement of purpose before you go and have a look at what the steps are. And equally, before you look at what you're doing in your processes, you've got to take some customer demands and define, well, what's the value work here? You know, if we just turn up and fix this, that's what it is, isn't it? And we find out what's gone wrong and we fix it. And having defined the value work, then you go out and see what goes on and where it happens. And they, they, again, they, you know, they get a major shock. There's an awful lot of things going on that bear no relation to what actually the customer wants. That's when they, that's when they have this dawning realisation that it's, it's not the processes that are the problem, it's the system conditions that are governing the processes. Because we have decided to specialise the work, we have decided to have front and back office, we have decided the back office works on rules, uh, we have decided, and so on and so forth, you know. Um, so now we understand that... You know, we're doing two kinds of work, the value work and everything else. And everything else is costing us money and adding no value to the customer. But now you can see the relationship between uh, the way the system conditions are suboptimizing the processes that are damaging your measure of achievement of purpose uh, against the demand. So now you've got a picture of a system. And you realize that the key to this is the way you think. So it's the thinking governing the system that's driving the performance. One of my most important insights regarding systems thinking was when I realized how the system drives behavior. Yes, I mean, so for example, imagine what we've got as an inbound call center where they're incentivizing the front line to sell. You're in the front line. You get a call from a customer. This customer's not going to buy anything from you today. What do you do with the call? Get, get rid, rid of, of it. it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you just try to close, like get rid of the call as soon as possible so you yeah. can get someone else calling in. Who might spy. Yes. Or another one is uh, you say to people, oh, you know, you just opened a bank account with me. Uh, you should have a, a savings account. And then you might say, no, no, I don't really need a savings account. Oh, don't worry, Sammy. It's free. Have a savings account. And you go, oh, all right then, you know, because you're being pushed around to do that. Well, I get my tick in the box and my incentive you know, for selling you a savings account. And what happens is six months later, you write, ring in and say, I've got to close this because like, I don't use it. And now you're starting to charge me money for it. And so, so we piss the customer off. We add to our costs. And yet we think we were making sales. So you mentioned system conditions, and that's my, maybe a term that we we should try to define a little. So, and so basically, system conditions in your language they, they're the conditions that govern behavior Correct. in organizations. Correct. So, what are some examples of system conditions? Well, we've talked about many: uh, measuring activity in a call center, measuring service level agreements, uh, standardizing work, specializing work. So it's kind of like the processes and the policies and the, and Every, the rules that we yeah. have in place in the yeah. organization. Correct. Where do they come from? From management thinking. So, you know, management think, uh, you know, one of the big issues in command and control management is you must manage your costs. So that's why we specialize work. That's why we standardize work. That's why we control activity. And the consequence of doing those things 
when they when you go and study it is that we're not actually controlling costs we're sending costs out of control but it's a belief that these things will control costs so it's the relationship between thinking the system and performance which is one of the core models yes that's actually it would be great if you talk a little more about that so so management thinking creates <coughs> uh the system conditions which creates performance. performance yeah and that's the way you study it you know you, you uh, when you when you when you go out and study it, you start with well, let's really understand performance. Um, we're going to have you get down there and have a discussion about what's the purpose of this service from a customer's point of view. Let's measure achievement of purpose, and you're going to get a shock. Then we'll go into let's study the system. And when we're studying the system, <coughs> we need to understand the things I talked about earlier. We need to understand the demand. We need to understand what the value work is to give customers what they need. And then you're going to see for yourself all the system conditions that you have imposed that stop the people giving the customers what they need. So you'll see for yourself then that will move to thinking. So you see the link between the performance, the way you design the system, and your thinking. And when, when you're in a place like that, <coughs> you will change. Uh, this, is very, this is so, so important. If you explain that to managers in a room, they won't get it. If you take them out to study it, they will get it. So, so the idea is that to be able to change the system, you need to first study it and you need to understand it. Yep. From what your under, new understanding, you can adjust the system conditions yes. to get the performance that you would actually want. Like, yes. 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 And you never go back. Yeah. You will never again manage activity Use arbitrary measures, standardize work. Never do that because you've seen how stupid it is. Yeah, yeah. Closing off, um, right. if there's one thing that you could get managers to, to do, start doing, or stop doing, what would that single thing be? Oh, just go beyond command and control. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Seddon's work, check out the show notes for resources. If you feel that you learned something from this episode, let others learn from it too, and post this episode on social media along with a description of what you learned. Last episode of this season coming up in two weeks, so talk to you then. Bye. This episode is also sponsored by Talented. Talented helps you score your dream job. Or if you see yourself more as a lone cowboy and you don't really want a job, they can also help you find freelancing gigs. To help you decide what's right for you, they've built a tool to calculate how much money you'd make as a freelancer. So for example, if you can bill 100 euros per hour from your client, you can have four months of vacation a year and still earn an 8,000 euro monthly salary all year round. So not bad. The link to the tool is in the show notes. Even if you're not currently looking for a job or freelancing gigs, you should still join the network. If nothing else, you should do it just to get to the summer party, which are here is going to be epic. Go to talented.fi. Harry and the fine people at Talented will make all your dreams come true.